It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome Sandy, thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in DC is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me or you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You all right? <laughs> I'm a musician, I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're gonna lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game, this is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. The 15-year-old accused of killing four and injuring others at Oxford High School is now charged as an adult. I will enter a plea of not guilty on his behalf. Both the suspect and his parents appearing in court virtually. He faces two dozen charges, including terrorism causing death and four counts of first-degree murder. In terms of the premeditation required for a first-degree murder charge, this just wasn't even a close call, unfortunately. This was deliberate. This was planned. Um, well in advance and disturbingly so. Investigators say they discovered troubling videos on the suspect's cell phone from the night before the deadly incident. While they did not give specifics. He talked about shooting and killing students the next day at Oxford High School. The Oakland County Sheriff says the suspect had meetings with school officials the day before and the day of the shooting for concerning behavior and another undisclosed issue. In fact, the parents were brought in the morning of the shooting and had a face-to-face -face meeting with the school. We did not learn of that meeting, nor of the content of that meeting until after the shooting. Videos posted on social media showing the chaos and terror happening as some students and teachers barricaded and evacuated their classrooms. I heard screams come from the hallway and um, the first gunshot happened. And my teacher, he walked into the classroom, he uh, locked the door, he told us to call 911. And then we heard the rest of the gunshots go off, more screams. While Oxford High is blocked off with yellow police tape as authorities continue their investigation, outside the school, a memorial is growing, a small way to remember and honor the four teenagers who died in the tragedy. All right, that's another, you know, another happening, another killing. Another murder, series of murders that we have to discuss that happened this week. It's just like we have, we have a, just an explosion of uh, uh, the lack of regard for human life, regardless of color, regardless of background. And so now we have another one. In Michigan, this Ethan Crumbly, this young guy, four people killed, four students, just outright murdered and seven injured. And he would have killed more, as you heard in that report. I know he tried to lure some of the kids out of the classroom tried to pretend like he was a policeman and have them come out uh, because he wanted to kill them. So it's just, um, I read on uh, Heavy.com, Heavy.com often has inside information that no one else has uh, about Ethan's parents just a little bit. Her, both of his parents are employed, and um, the father, I know, they're reporting that he bought the gun, what, just a couple of days before the incident. So I don't know much about them, but the one thing that Heavy did report was that the mother, um, can't find her name, uh, the mother um, was writing, had written to Donald Trump, I think, twice. And in one of those, uh, she says, I, I've always been a Democrat, but um, I don't believe in God, and I'm, uh, I forgot what else she said. 
Uh, she was concerned about immigration, and so she uh, decided to vote for him. And so um, I forgot but the other uh, letter that she said she was complaining about the differences between the uh, why was it so hard for them to get services when it was so easy for others it was about economics very embittered and so these are little clues but it did make me wonder uh, if in the process of this now look I could talk about the tragedy I could I know that's a tragedy but I'm going to talk about the political aspects of this I found myself wondering if that's why the prosecutor came out immediately saying this was terrorism and murder. I mean, they came right out with it. Uh, not him hawing and, no, we're not sure about the, the reasons. Uh, we're unsure about his motives. That's what they always say after shootings. And so then I found myself saying to myself, well, is this because he's white and because his parent, his dad had a gun and we don't know other things about them? Maybe some things will come out. But, of course, uh, white men are domestic terrorists, especially Trump supporters. They are suspected of being domestic terrorists by uh, the federal government. And so is this the, the mood? Is this why he was immediately charged with not just murder, but terrorism? Uh, and the motive, they say, that he did it on purpose. I was thinking about, about the contrast with Daryl Brooks, who ran down uh, all of these people in a red uh, SUV in Waukesha, Wisconsin, killing six of them injuring 60 people. And one by one, uh, observers, policemen, uh, told us that Daryl was intent. The police had just stopped him to talk to him, and, and then he intentionally headed his car for people and avoided you know, floats and other kinds of things. He wanted to hit people. So uh, we also know that he had just run over his girlfriend, the mother of one of his children, uh, not too long before that, we also know, only from heavy, I don't think it's been major news, that he had Black Lives Matter sympathies based on his social media uh, um, posts and I don't know what other things. But now there's, you know, they're not sure of his motive. They're not sure about what to charge him for. Um, I don't see him charged with terrorism or premeditated murder. I don't, if he has been charged, I don't know about it. Because he's, he's a black criminal. And the, st the scales of justice just seem to be completely cattywankas right now. On the other side of the issue with Daryl Brooks, his mother uh, wrote a letter, I think, to a local paper. And I, I have to tell you, at first when I saw this headline, I was not sympathetic. But as I read it, I was sympathetic. Uh, she's 62 years old. He was living with her. And she's talking about how, uh, he, I guess he had a mental illness and was taking medication when he was a child, but he stopped taking his medication. And as he began to get in more and more trouble, uh, he was arrested and put in prison. And she talks about how bad the prison system is and how it doesn't help. It just makes them hardened criminals. Uh, and she talks about how serious mental illness is. We must take it seriously by fixing a broken system or suffer the consequences. Sad as is to say what happened to Waukesha and will keep happening all over this country in one form or another with more innocent lives lost and grieving families, and communities. Her name is Dawn Brooks, and that's what she wrote. But then she said, Brooks, the, the, the killer in the Waukesha, the accused killer, <clears throat> came from a loving Christian family and is the grandson of ministers. Uh, and uh, she, she said it started as a child, uh, and it came when it was determined that he no longer suffered from mental illness and his treatment was terminated. So that's what she said. She said he's... Uh, Instead of offering help and resources, a jail cell was given over and over again. Well, all right. 
So it's true that mental health is not being addressed in this country anymore, uh, that we have a lot of mentally ill people wandering the streets and committing crimes, uh, and that is a huge problem. It's also true that the prison system, I think that those of us who care about what happened on January 6th and are watching those prisoners, uh, their mistreatment in that uh, D.C. jail, are beginning to understand why there are so many complaints about the prison system. Uh, because that's a jail, it's not prison, but uh, the jail guards have abused these prisoners. And so uh, I do think we are going to have to take seriously these concerns. This is from Jock. He's a listener. He said, the courts and prison systems in our country are nonproductive in producing reform, rehabilitated productive citizens back into our society. We as taxpaying people deserve an investigation of this self-proclaimed industry. It's all about the money to our failed judicial system. And I think Jock, uh, it's spelled J-O-U-C-K, may be right, and that many of us have been unwilling to listen to the complaints about the prison system because we don't, that's not our world. Uh, we don't have criminals' behavior in our families or criminals, and we don't know, know nothing about it. And we think they deserve punishment, and so we turn a blind eye. But I do think this is a challenge to sort of, uh, once we get past all of this mess, to really look at that and uh, to bring some justice in our criminal justice system. Just a practical word, I think many people are probably not seeing Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook anymore or getting it in your inbox. We're noticing there's hardly any comments, and that's not, you know, it's been happening for a long time. It went down from thousands to hundreds, and now it's almost nothing. So let me just tell you, if you want to at least uh, have access to the podcast, just Google or DuckDuckGo Sandy Rios in the morning. There are several outlets that uh, Apple Podcasts does it, um, TuneIn Radio, Sandy Rios in the morning. You can find it all over the place, uh, just maybe not on Facebook uh, anymore. And we're looking for ways to now to post our articles in other venues so that you can actually see them, but we're not there yet. So Sandy Rios in the morning, just that. When we come back, you're in for a treat. Elijah Schaefer, Sandy Rios in the morning. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. As to the second count of the information, Richard McGinnis, we the jury find the defendant Kyle H. Rittenhouse not guilty. As to the third count of the information, unknown male, we the jury find the defendant Kyle H. Rittenhouse not guilty. As to the fourth count of the information, Anthony Huber, we the jury find the defendant Kyle H. Rittenhouse not guilty. As to the fifth count of the information, Gage Grosskreutz, we the jury find the defendant Kyle H. Rittenhouse not guilty. Members of the jury, are these your unanimous verdicts? Is there anyone who does not agree with the verdicts as read? And that's the way it went down, uh, not even quite two weeks ago. Uh, when Kyle Rittenhouse was declared not guilty on all counts. It was amazing. Uh, it's an amazing story. And yet the ripple effects from that evening in Kenosha on August the 25th of 2020 have continued. We had, had Daryl Brooks uh, just uh, the, this past Sunday uh, running his car through the Christmas parade, killing six people. And, of course, uh, we there probably is a connection. We'll talk about that. Uh, but certainly it was a, seemed to be in response to what happened in neighboring Kenosha not long before that. We've had all kinds of turmoil in our country. We've watched the riots in the streets. We've watched Black Lives Matter burn things down. We've watched Antifa attack and even kill people in Seattle, uh, in Portland. Uh, it's been uh, a couple of years of complete turmoil. 
And so you may have wondered, uh, as you were watching those videos of Kyle Rittenhouse, like running down the street and all the different angles, who was there to capture that? Were they just bystanders who happened to be there by accident? Or were they intentional sort of street journalists? And I'd say the latter is true. I've been wanting to talk to Elijah Schaefer now for a couple of weeks, and he is finally free to talk to us. Uh, he, by the way, is the host of Slightly Offensive with Elijah Schaefer on Blaze Podcast, and he's also a news reporter for Blaze Media, and he was in Kenosha on August the 25th of 2020. Elijah, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Elijah, can you kind of get, before we get into the particulars of Kenosha, what is your job description? Is there a niche for you? Like I had a, one of my really good friends was a Pulitzer Prize nominated photographer, third world photographer for the Chicago Tribune, but he had certain assignments. He was to cover uh, the world and all the major events. So he was in the middle of all kinds of turmoil way back before you were born. Uh, fascinating person. So what what is your purview? What does the blaze tell you you must do? What is your mission? Well, I actually invented my own mission because I saw that the media was failing to cover uh, specifically sensitive social movements and uh, violent uh, chaos. So that would that would include uh, protests that turn into to violence or riots that would ensue, as we are now familiar with in 2020. So essentially, uh, it's sort of like a domestic war reporter to insert yourself into situations, whether it's uh, with uh, you know around gangs or racial issues or things where violence is at a high potential and where clashes between um, angry individuals and government officials and opposition are highly likely. So it's essentially acting like a stupid idiot, worrying the life, <laughs> running around the country, just inserting myself into situations that are uh, both put, put my life at risk, but intentionally try to show a side of the story that other media is not willing to. Yeah, let me just say you've been very effective at doing that. We're going to talk about some of the places you've been. Uh, you were there on January the 6th. I surely want to talk about that. You were in Kenosha on August 25th, as we said. What other things have you covered that, that uh, well, what other things have you been covering that you can talk about? Well, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, really through the entire chaos. I mean, from, I, you know, I've lived and inserted myself in the Chaz Chop commune in Seattle when they took over the city. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, been able to cover the beginning of the George Floyd riots, including the uh, you know, famous machete man who was nearly killed in Dallas. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've gone from riots from New York to Philadelphia to Chicago, from Los Angeles. I mean, it's been all around the country. And, um, you know, I've been, uh, I've been very damaged. I've been jumped. Uh, I've had a lot of guns. I've had guns point at me, pull, the trigger pulled, been in quite a few shootings, seen a lot of people die, and uh, a lot of damage uh, done into our nation. And it's, you know, it's broken my heart. It's been a very difficult season, but I've tried to remain as professional as possible. Um, and, I mean, I don't know if there's any major city that, that I haven't been to where there hasn't been mass chaos or any place where I haven't at least seen damage or near death. And so um, it's been a really trying time, but, you know, God is good and, and he's protected me throughout all of this. And all I've walked away with is maybe a little PTSD and a few broken bones here and there. But uh, overall, I'm alive, so I'm happy. Yeah, well, we're happy you're alive also. I'm sure your mother is too, and your family. I'm just uh, curious, Elijah, how, just practically speaking, how do you prepare yourself to go in a situation like that? Are you physically fit? Do you train? Do you have somebody to protect you? Uh, how does one prepare for those situations, to be a journalist? 
Yeah, so I would say the most important thing is to be where you believe things might potentially happen. I mean, you know, obviously with the dozens of, of large and historic events, some of them more notable than others that have been able to capture over the last several years, uh, there's, you know, several dozen more where things didn't occur. So I've just had to, you know, put myself in places where I believe there are tensions. Um, and unfortunately for our nation, usually those intuitions are correct and bad things have been happening, especially during the last election. But, you know, I mean, when I go out to these things, I go fully undercover. I, um, you know, I have AR-500 armor. I wear full plates. Um, I'm armed. I, you know, I have a lot of necessary tactics. I've gone through, you know, wound training, field training. Um, in some cases, have to travel with a security team, but in most times, I prefer just to travel alone and protect myself. Um, but it's, uh, you know, you got, definitely got to be wearing a gas mask because you get shot with a lot of rubber bullets and you're in uh, huge plumes of tear gas. Um, you know, you, you get you get a lot of cuts and bruises, like I mentioned earlier, broken bones. So I think fortitude and a mindset of being willing to get hurt to get a story, but also not being too stupid to know that when there was an assassination attempt on my life in Washington, D.C., where the FBI had to get involved and extract me from the city. So there's a certain point where the story's not worth it if it's going to, you know, cost you your life. You know, so you have to get out. But yeah. for the most part, I think playing it smart and blending in, especially a lot of these events, I dressed up in a black block like uh, our good idea of Antifa to sort of blend in and give that perspective that I was one of them. And that gave me a lot of insight to go undercover by just simply wearing all black. When you, uh, are you primarily, do you consider yourself primarily a photojournalist? Do you always have your camera, whether it's video or still, is that always on your face or are you writing and observing? Which, which way does it go for you? Uh, it goes both ways. I think I, I want to point out that there's a clear distinction. When I'm on the field, it's to get the video and photos out to show what's intentionally happening that people want to see that the media refuses to cover, which is should be obvious. Of course, after I do, I have uh, you know a daily show called You Are Here that's live. Uh, it's Monday through Friday on YouTube and everywhere else. You can find videos at 6 p.m. Central where I you know break down the day's events and what's going on. I also have my podcast you mentioned earlier, Slightly Offensive, where there's a lot of writing involved with that and commentary. But I do like to bring a distinction between commentary, you know, where people can go to hear my perspective on what I've captured on my shows versus following me, let's say, on social media, uh, where I like to report in real time and like to show things as they're happening, um, which is was a fairly new thing, actually. It, it, it used to be called live blogging, but then it became very serious because obviously like, my footage has been used in both impeachment trials of President Trump and the January 6th committee and the trial of, you know, been used as witness testimony type of thing in, in the Rittenhouse shooting and many other cases around the country. So, it, you know, it's not really blogging. It's definitely documentation. And it is interesting, no matter how much people like to, uh, you know, Harvard University wrote an article about me saying that I was the problem, that, you know, capturing the riots and showing people what, what's happening in the world is the real danger to society. And dishonest publications like The Intercept, uh, Robert Mackey, you know, have said that, you know, my footage is, is lies and it's, it's meant to stoke division. But I see my footage as a key to unlocking a story that many people could show but refuse to do so. And a few of my friends and others have, have joined in, the, in the, the search for truth on the field, including Drew Hernandez, uh, Shelby Talcott, Julio Rosas, George Ventura, Richie, a few others as well from the Daily Caller and, and Town Hall, et cetera, have really joined in to try to you know tell this different side of the story. And I'm glad to know that it's pissing off the right kind of people 
because if the evil people are mad about the footage that we're putting out, then it means we're probably showing the truth because they refuse to do so. Well, Elijah, for years, uh, because I've been doing this for a long time, the one thing that I had to always say to people, it the news media, they've been lying for a long time. This is not new. It's just more blatant and more bold than it used to be, less hidden. But one of the ways they used to deceive was it wasn't what they told you, it's what they did not tell you. They would only tell you a part of the story. I think people understand that more now than they used to. And what you're talking about is that, that you are showing now, no, let's turn this way and see what's happening here. And it's kind of like the the syndrome of CNN reporting in front of the riots with all the burning buildings saying it's, these are peaceful protests. It's it's that disconnect with reality that it's created in people, and you're providing the real view So uh, and courageously. So we're very grateful. I want just one another kind of philosophical question. Have you were you surprised? It's the same thing but different here. Were you surprised by the contrast when you would see reporting or news reports? The contrast between what was reported and what you were seeing on the ground. One hundred percent. I think you you hit the nail on the head here of one of my main frustrations with the current media scape. You know, people try to lecture me about things that I was there to observe, which has shown me how out of touch the media really is. Because, you know, I'll get into arguments with establishment media individuals, both online and in person, and they try to tell me, you know, here's how January 6th went, and here's how Rittenhouse went, the shootings. And it's like, well, I was there, and I observed it with my eyes, and I'm not exactly, uh, you know, mentally handicapped or have any vision impairments, and I know what you're saying is inaccurate because I saw it. And of course, being observing, you know, I can't, I'm not God, so I can't see all angles and know all motives of everybody in every situation. So of course, truth can come out and other journalists and a lot of people have roles in telling a whole story. But when I watch the media, you know, say, well, who cares if you saw it with your eyes? This is how we're portraying it from our studio in New York. (laughs) And I just think, wow, that's so crazy that you can write off a key witness of something as being someone who's uninformed when you were not there, don't even use the original framework or evidence. You're using my evidence to tell your story. And I'm telling you that your story is incorrect based on the evidence. And you're telling me I'm wrong. I mean, that's not only narcissism, that's just straight up uh, a conspiracy to lie to the American public. And it's always frustrated me because it's like, they don't want you to believe what you've seen. They want you to believe what they tell you is happening. And that is leaving out huge amounts of information that, they, you know, they always say, like, you know, this, this black man was shot by police, but then don't tell you that he was charging a police officer with a knife. You know, they, they just leave out key information to discredit people and, and, and to switch the narrative. And I know many of your listeners know this already and are just beyond frustrated, which is why we've abandoned the media outlet on in mass. I don't even know if you watch any of these people anymore. I just refuse to engage besides studying my opponents and, and trying to understand why and what motives they have to lie to the public. Well, that's me too. I really, I really almost watch hardly any television now, except selected programs that I that I tape. Because for that very reason, why would I waste my time? Or I see the clips from MSNBC, and I think, why would I waste my time? They are they're crazy. They're not crazy. They're actually very smart. And we're, they're up to no good, and we know that. But I don't. We need to talk. We need to major on spending our valuable, precious time telling the truth, because there's enough lies for the other ninety nine percent of the airwaves. But I, I want to, we, since we started out with Kenosha, let's go there first. You um, first tell us what part of the footage that was used in that trial, if it's possible to describe it, uh, where you were in that, you were right there when Kyle was running down the street. Did, had you seen him early, seen him 
earlier in the evening he as he was trying to help people? Yeah, so actually the first footage of Kyle, um, like the first interview from speaking to the legal team, I was able to conduct before even knowing that any of these events had happened. So I had approached uh, who I now know to be Kyle Rittenhouse, who was with a group of other young men uh, who were defending a building using CS gas and non-lethal uh, means successfully, I might add, while the police were doing nothing. Um, I, you know, approached Kyle, who seemed to, you know, he had blue gloves on and he, you know, was seemed to be asking if anyone needed aid. So I just discussed with him, like, what his motives were and if he was carrying, if his gun was loaded, um, you know, and then he, you know, asked me to leave the property kindly. And unlike some people that night, when someone holding an AR-15 uh, asks you to comply with something on private property, you probably should. Um, so I, you know, of course, went on my way and Kyle proceeded to uh, administer aid um, to people who were affected by the tear gas that some of his uh, friends used to keep people away from the building. So that was my first interaction with him. And I kind of stayed around him and the group the entire night before this event happened, uh, especially as the uh, rioters tried to blow up a gas station. You know, I was there recording the whole altercation between uh, Kyle and Joseph Rosenbaum and the way that, you know, they were trying to put out the fire, Kyle and his friends or his whoever they are. I mean, the, the other armed young men that were there. Um, and yeah, I mean, so I followed them all the way up into the final moments of the shootings and it was a long, long few nights. And that night in particular was obviously one our country will never forget. So, um, see, I guess I didn't realize Kyle was there more. I'm sorry that my mind, my brain is fuzzy on that. He was there more than one night and so were you then. And this was the second night. Uh, Elijah, there's the music. So you have to answer that on the other side of the break. But I, w- I know that you've gotten to know Kyle. I also want to know, though, take part a little bit more of what happened that evening from your perspective. It's difficult to go back and describe something now that there's been so much coverage. But I bet you can do that. Uh, also, I do want us to talk about January 6th because that's a very, uh, that event, uh, talk about changing the trajectory of the country. Uh, that's changing it. And uh, a lot of the people that listen to this show uh, we're there on January 6th. Many of them, I'm sure, have been harassed. Uh, and so we need to talk about that, too, because I want to think, I want to find out what you saw with your very own eyes. My guest is Elijah Schaefer, the host of Slightly Offensive with Elijah Schaefer on Blaze Broadcast, also the news reporter of the Blaze, and uh, the host of You Are Here on YouTube. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Much of the coverage at the beginning was wrong. The trial proved that. But just in the last two weeks, you know, people might not believe this, but I watch MSNBC, CNN. I'm not a big Fox guy. And... You know, when I hear Joe Scarborough saying that my client shot his gun 60 times, that's wrong. When I hear some, you know, guest host on the Joy Reid say that my client drove four hours to go to a riot with his AR, that's wrong. It's false. And it makes me angry that they can't take the time to at least get the generic basic facts correct. And because it didn't fit in the story that they wanted to tell. All right, that was the voice of Mark Richards. He was the lawyer for Kyle Rittenhouse. We played that, of course, right after the trial. He was very impressive, very impressive in his unimpressiveness. Just an everyday, everyman, street guy, street fighter, Not uh, his head not turned by publicity, 
who did a real steady, effective job of defending Kyle Rittenhouse. And he's describing what we're talking about, the distortions of media. My guest is Elijah Schaefer. He's with Blaze Media. You can watch him every night at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time on You Are Here on YouTube. And you can find him on social media and any of those outlets that you use. Uh, So, Elijah, you were there in Kenosha. We were just discussing it before the break. Just tell us maybe your perspective of what you saw in those final moments. It all happened quickly, and you're there filming. How in the world do you know even where to point your camera when so much so much is happening? Just tell us about that moment for you. Yeah, so obviously um, this is a night that I'll never forget, and definitely a turning point. Uh, I, my mother had just died shortly before this, and I was obviously didn't get a chance to mourn that or to you know, deal with that. But watching, you know, her die and trying to deal with the death, I was out that night just trying to avoid confrontation with death. And um, the rioters were at the car source, uh, absolute, without absolute vitriol and hatred, destroying the cars um, at this lot, breaking the lights out, the windows, looting uh, the cars, et cetera. It's like some sort of a repair slash used car lot. It's kind of unclear sometimes of what was going on because of the amount of damage that was happening. And um, at this point, uh, I was only ended up going there because I stayed with the front of the riot. And the individuals were trying to light the cars on fire to blow them up like they had done to millions of dollars worth of other vehicles in another part of the city. And so I was just filming a SUV um, that had all its windows broken out with hammers. And that was currently they were trying to blow up. And. I was thrown off because a a gunshot went off, which was not from Kyle Rittenhouse, but somebody shot a firearm in my direction and you heard the bullet ricochet. And I just, you know, I said some words that wouldn't be appropriate for your audience for this platform. But in those situations, I didn't know what else to say. And I became, uh, you know, frightened for a second just because I knew someone was shooting in our direction. Um, Then through the car windows that were broken out, you know, an individual who's, you know, I now know it's Kyle I saw earlier the night is running up and he turns around his back is pointed towards the car that I'm standing at right there. And uh, Rosenbaum lunges for his gun. And of course, you hear the bang, 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 bang. And, and Kyle, uh, you know, shoots Rosenbaum. So I jumped behind a car because uh, what people don't talk about is the amount of, I think there were, there was multiple, like almost, I don't remember the exact number, but I know there was well over three dozen, I believe, casings found in the area. People don't talk about the fact of all the guns that started going off and people, sh- someone started, there's a drive-by, like someone started shooting out of their car. So it was sort of like a war zone and you could just hear the bullets ricocheting and the pops going off. And so I'm just ducking for cover. But the minute the fire cleared, I got up and ran to Rosenbaum and uh, that footage of him dying uh, was the footage from my phone. Um, and... It was, you know, obviously watching somebody else die, watching Kyle run away, seeing, you know, there's more shootings happening right down the street. And I just, you know, I, I kind of broke down. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like, I was mad. I was freaked out. I ran uh, towards the police line because, you know, the amount of guns that kept still going off, and I knew I was immediately in danger. Um, but, you know, I'm going to be honest. I don't, I don't cry much, but I did do a little bit of crying that night, not for any other reason than just mourning the state of the nation and just realizing that, you know, I didn't know who who was shot that night. I didn't know who Kyle's political beliefs. I didn't know anything. All I knew is that what we were, what I saw that night could have been prevented and that, you know, this sort of chaos was being allowed to happen. And like, I would just been around that death in the family that I was just so tired of being around death and, and, and this destruction that I, you know, just my heart hurt. And I think a lot of people feel the same way. And 
the interesting thing is I, I called my, my uh, boss that night and I told him that, you know, there was no signs that anything that happened that night had to do with white supremacy. But I knew that that was going to be the pervading narrative since there was a shooter that was white and it was at a, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter riot. I knew the narrative, what was going to happen before it even started. And lo and behold, obviously, we saw the nonstop slander towards Rittenhouse, uh, dishonest slander, intentional dishonesty, um, the ignoring of the journalists that were on the ground that saw the event. Uh, in order so they could push their narrative. And then, you know, God bless the justice system for once in a while, they get it right and actually acquitted him because, man, that was close. So it's been a long journey. It's been a long trial. But, uh, you know, what I saw that night was self-defense, and that's what the jury saw too. And it's just nice to have a little bit of closure, not only for Kyle himself, but for everyone who was involved just dealing with the onslaught and, and the drama that ensued from this. Well, that's the truth. I can tell you that the whole country, those that are you know have a— have a heart for truth, saw exactly what was happening, and we're just breathed a sigh of release, relief. And I know, you know, because of what you're describing, Elijah, you can certainly understand why Kyle was diagnosed with PTSD and why he broke down on the stand. And I'm sure you probably really, I, I can't even imagine you watching that trial, uh, having seen what you saw and having known him a little bit. Since that time, you've gotten to know him a little bit. Um, so a couple of questions. Were you amazed at his composure in that trial, and secondly, what you know, what has been your contact with him since, and and how is he doing? Yeah, so um, obviously, for legal reasons, I have to be kind of vague on this, but um, I have been able to connect with him uh, off the record. Uh, now that the trial's over, I, I can say that um, I've been in contact with his team, and not for political reasons, but simply because I believe that he was being slandered. Uh, deeply and I felt bad for an American citizen who I saw have no other option but to discharge his firearm to protect his life, be thrown under the bus even by the president of the United States as a white supremacist with no evidence. Uh, that talking to him, you know, I say that his spirits had been really up over the last year. He had been really hopeful that his team was going to win because the truth was on his side. Of course, he feared what we all fear, that the courts could be, you know, mob justice could rule um, and that it could not, justice may not be blind. But as of right now, he seems to be doing really well. He seems positive. Um, really, uh, you know, he's an 18-year-old guy. He's, I think what a lot of people don't understand is he's not, he's, you know, not overtly a political person. I mean, when this happened, he wasn't, didn't go out, you know, to fight for Trump. He went out to protect his, his community and to offer aid to people. And for that reason, he's just a normal American kid and, you know, going to school, doing his thing and just trying to find a footing and live life normal again. Um, and of course we saw today with the huge defamation lawsuit that he's waging, get hopefully get in restitution by, you know, he'll never be able to clear his name in the public's eye, but hopefully he'll be able to bankrupt some people in the process and show some consequences for what they've done for him. And I think even on that regard, I can't comment much, but I know that the team is hopeful that they're going to win a lot of these cases. Well, we're all hopeful that they're going to win a lot of cases. I think that's the only thing that's going to stop this is uh, suing these media outlets for false reporting and defamation. And uh, so so enough said about that, and we'll be watching. And, of course, the story about Kyle is going to be ongoing. Uh, Arizona State, now a lot of students, some students there, are trying to get him kicked out of the school already. So he's going to be, it's going to be a rough path for him. Uh, but, but we wish him only the best, and I know you do too. I want to get to January the 6th. So tell me, uh, where were you and what did you see? Yeah, so on January 6th, uh, I made a fatal decision to not bring my full riot here. I did have a, you know, a flak jacket on and I did have some equipment, but I thought like most Trump 
protest, this was going to be completely peaceful. Uh, I regret that decision. I only went with about a half-charged phone, thought I was going to film a couple hours of, you know, some chants that were going to be out there. Uh, but of course, before Trump had finished filming, I decided to head to the front uh, of the Capitol building because in previous protests, Antifa and Black Lives Matter had been waiting for the Trump supporters who had marched multiple times peacefully on Supreme Court and Capitol. If you're not, people aren't familiar with Pennsylvania Avenue or D.C., these buildings are very close to each other and they're a, you know, a mile or two away from where the original protest was. So I branched out and went to the Capitol building, assuming that I was going to find Antifa, who were not there. Um, there are there, as I walked up, there were a few people who were agitating the crowd, um, you know, calling to 1776, the gates, et cetera. But I thought it was just, you know, hearsay or whatever. Um, there's a man on a megaphone. And uh, there was one individual who uh, named Ray Epps, who I began filming, I began filming at a front gate who started whispering in people's ears as they started taking over the initial barriers to the Capitol building. Um, it is interesting because I've tried to work with federal prosecutors and with the, the FBI to, of course, identify Ray Epps and let them know his involvement in instigating what they claim to be an insurrection, inaccurately, that is. Um, but they have no interest in him, which is really interesting. Uh, they have no interest in working with him or arresting him for for instigating the violence that day, which he did do. Uh, he's an, one of the main instigators. And so we know for sure in some way he must be working with the federal government. Um, and, Elijah, yeah, let me so ask I, you, I, I, yeah. was it your footage? I mean, I saw all of those videos, at least all the ones I think are, that are available on Ray Epps, of him shouting uh, in the bullhorn the night before and of him uh, right by the gate there whispering in the guy's ear who had the uh, Make America Great cap on. Uh, were you there? Was that your footage that we saw? Yes, so the sec the latter one. Yeah, so that was that was me right there. It was actually, and I don't mean this in any like personal like way, but that was actually the first footage of violence at the Capitol did come from from my my camera, and I got it up immediately, so in real time. So it was the first altercation that occurred. Uh, I was able to capture that, which I'm grateful for wow. because we're able to see what really happened um, yeah. as Americans, and that's that's when I knew it wasn't going to be good. Essentially, um, I mean, long story short. The group went up to the Capitol, they calmed down, and then the police agitated the group by beginning to uh, shoot uh, flashbang grenades and tear gas canisters behind the crowd, which is a weird crowd control measure. So it pushed everyone forward after they had calmed down. Um, I started feeling things were weird because, like, this guy had a fake injury, then, like, somebody had fake blood and water bottles and was, you know, spreading it on the floor. And I was going, what is going on here? Like, I... I, some people were attacking police. Other people were protecting the police. I, I was just like, this is the weirdest thing I've been involved in. And um, then I saw a, a group of individuals break through police lines. And I usually like to be at the front of the chaos to show, you know, to show America what's happening in real time. And that's when they um, broke right into the Capitol, the, the first people that, were, that got in. And I had to make a conscious decision on whether or not, you know, risking my safety or even my legal standard to enter the Capitol was worth showing the story of what was about to happen. Obviously, I was afraid we were going to get shot, as Ashley Babbitt did. Um, but as the as the protesters and 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 some of those that were rioting broke in, I just went. I I, I tried to stop people actually from going in. I was like, "Hey guys, you're going to get shot," you know, like just warning you guys, like you guys can get shot. Yeah, cause I'm not. I don't want anyone to die, right? I mean, I'm never never a fan of that. 
um, from Kenosha. And like I said, all the deaths that I was around, I didn't want to see anyone else die. No one listened, which is you know, up to them. And I ended up like that footage in the inside of the Capitol, too, where they confront the police for the first time and they all start brawling and fighting. That was also my footage. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we got deep into the office and I, you know, you could see people fleeing still, staffers trying to evacuate, et cetera. And it was just a pretty chaotic moment. It was not a coup or an insurrection, I, like people say, but it definitely was a riot. Uh, it was angry people, and I ended up getting locked inside the Capitol building. And, uh, you know, just to let your viewers know, I have a federal press credential for the Capitol building, actually. Um, so I was uh, luckily, I was, they were going to arrest me, but I was able to use my credential to get past police lines to get out after several hours. Um, but the left has really used uh, capturing that event to take revenge on me for some of the previous work I did in Kenosha that was used to help vindicate Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, so obviously with capturing that event, I was in legal right to do so. I had a federal credential. Um, but to show you how much collusion there is between big tech companies and uh, the me dishonest media to attack anyone trying to show the truth, uh, as I went home that night, I was um, you know, contacted by journalists asking me about my to give a comment on how you know all my social media accounts were um, demonetized, how I felt about getting my you know Instagram and Facebook deleted. And, you know, about losing my advertisers on my show. And I it was so weird because I looked on, I went online and I wasn't demonetized on social media. My Instagram and Facebook weren't deleted. Um, I didn't have any advertisers emailing me. I was just doing my job. And then uh, the next day, things started happening where I started losing all my revenue streams. Um, <laughs> and I realized that that's how much the collusion was before big tech had even acted upon anything. The media already knew what they were going to do. Um, so that shows you the preemptive, how coordinated this all is. I mean, they, they robbed me of so much money. It almost took me down completely. Uh, but through a lot of legal action, which also was expensive, I was able to get a lot of that stuff back. But to this day, I mean, it's even hard for me to find a home to, to rent because the dishonest articles, I mean, to show you how dishonest they, they slandered the country. I mean, there's a, the, the first article that pops up when you research me, it says that, a, you know, a Trump supporter broke into Nancy Pelosi's office. And they use a picture of somebody with their feet on Nancy Pelosi's desk, and that's, it's a woman. It's not even me. But if you look closely, it's, it's a woman. So they, they even use images that are not even who I am. And I'm, you know, my po politics should be set aside. I had a credential, and I was legally reporting. Um, and you know, Eric Swalwell stuck the FBI, Homeland Security on me, intimidated my neighbors, my friends, harassed me, followed me, have just caused so much problems, but false accusations of wiretapping. I mean, that January 6th event was used as a honeypot to attack any political opposition from reporters to politicians to the American people to the protesters and rioters themselves. I mean, it has been a disgusting disregard of the justice system, a political attack. And, and I wish I would have known that going in. And now we can see the truth of what a scam this entire thing has been. Yep, it's the truth. And people are more willing to listen to that now, Elijah, because of the ridiculous lies about COVID, the, the lies about the Russian Russiagate and all of that. I want to ask you, though, before you, we have to say goodbye, uh, you spent a lot of time with Antifa, and uh, I, I have my own ideas, but why wasn't, I know, I know exactly why, but why wasn't Antifa there on January 6th? Why were they so absent from that event? I have no good answer for you since they were at every other event in large numbers, and they just were not visible 
like they, they defies all explanation. And the only answer that could be would be if they were integrated in to the group in some ways. I, I honestly, there's nothing I can tell you because they, there's, they should have been there in large numbers as they've always been. And somehow on that day, they just decided not to show up. And I don't think there's a valid explanation beyond what probably your audience is already thinking. Yes, right. Which I'll say, I'll put words to it. Collusion. Collusion with the authorities, with Nancy Pelosi, with the FBI, with Capitol Police, uh, so that to sort of set up people that were supporting President Trump to try to set them up for a fall, which is exactly what they did. It was very clever. And if Antifa had been there, you know, swinging their clubs and killing people, then that would have been the narrative. So they just stayed away. And I think it was a big setup. Uh, I don't think every Capitol policeman or every person involved in, uh, that had a uniform was aware of this, but I think it's most definitely true. So going forward, has this made you uh, more frightened, Elijah, to go into these areas of danger or or what? What effect has this had on your, your willingness to do what you do? Uh, I would say... You know, the physical violence, a lot of these things. And I was just covering some events in Chicago this past weekend, and I was in Kenosha as well, because of the trial. So I'm not, you know, as nervous. I just think that the uh, the effect it's had on me has caused me to pair up more with with politicians and with people who are actually fighting this with a Freedom Caucus, with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and some of these individuals and Paul Gosar, uh, you know, to, to understand that we even if the First and Second Amendment exist, that like we saw with Kyle Rittenhouse, he may have been acquitted, but they still jailed him for eight months and, you know, took took millions and millions of dollars, you know, potentially away from him and just tarnished his reputation. So what this has done to me is realize that even if we still have rights, the cost to try to protect those rights is, is enormous. And I guess I'm willing to do what it takes still. Yeah. God bless you, Elijah. And that's the place where we all have to be because this is, they're coming after all of us. We know that. Anyone who understands the circumstances know that this is just a trial one and run. And you guys are the tip of the spear. Elijah Schaefer, host of Slightly Offensive with Elijah Schaefer on the Blaze podcast, also news reporter for Blaze. And you can hear him every day at 6 p.m. on You Are Here on YouTube. And you can find him on any social media outlet just to follow what it is he's doing and what he's in the middle of. Elijah Schaefer, thank you and God bless. Sandy Reels in the morning.